Biblical religion does not seem to require the man of faith to repress his doubts in silent resignation. Abraham, Jeremiah, and Job, all men who question God's ways, are hardly numbered among the wicked. There is even some evidence that God demands such criticism, at least from his prophets. So you might think, oh, I'm going to be a good Jew. I'm going to blindly accept God. Oh, that's not what the Torah says. The, the role models in our tradition are people of doubt and people of critique. One mainstream religious approach holds that God is perfect. Humans are imperfect. And a bold protest against God's actions is ignorant, immoral, and childish. But as we see from the above, it is not hard to find the alternative view as well, that protesting God is not futile, but rather is a deeply religious and moral act. Indeed, there are strands of rabbinic thought that not only allow for, but even celebrate human confrontation with God. It is not only some of the Talmudic sages that embrace this theology, but perhaps even God, God's self as well. Good, so now that I've laid out the framework, we're now gonna pause for the poll. We got your, we got your tongue wet for the, for the topic. Humans versus God, the, perhaps the greatest debate of all. Let's now jump into the poll to see who's in the room and how you relate to this topic on a personal level. Sorry for the delay. Is God just? One, if there is a God, that God does not appear to be just. Two, I do believe in God, but struggle to believe that God is good. Three, I don't know. Four, it doesn't appear obvious, but I have faith that God is just. Fifthly, I know God is completely just. Okay, again, these five options can never exhaust the extent of our theological approaches to such an issue. But, um, well, by the way, welcome uh, Eric and welcome Lauren. Um, so, but if you'll take a moment to cast your vote here. Um, give you a few more seconds. Okay. Let's see the results. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, perhaps some people are shy in voting or, but in any case, 22% are, I know God is completely just. 78%. It doesn't appear obvious, but I have faith that God is just. Okay. Um, and then, and then the, the other 0%. Okay. Very interesting. Now that doesn't resolve our tension for today. It actually adds to the question. Um, what do we do with the fact that if we believe God is just or suspected, but we don't see God acting justly in the world, what happens in that gap? Okay. In Rabbi Dr. Dove Weiss's book, Pious Irreverence, Confronting God in Rabbinic Judaism, Weiss lists a series of challenges, protests, and confrontations with God. And then he notes that after none of these challenges, does God castigate or punish the challenger? Dr. Weiss demonstrates how a theology of protest extends even towards the heavens. In showing the rabbinic exploration of the parameters of God's benevolence and moral perfection, he teaches us deep lessons about both humanity and divinity. In confronting the awesomeness of God's deeds, Weiss argues that humanity is also able to construct a fallible God 
and a God that quote unquote recognizes his own limitations and fallibility. In fact, how are we to relate to an imperfect world or an imperfect relationship to the divine? We can recognize that none of us is born perfect. Every breath is but another opportunity, another chance to improve our tangible being in this world. Similarly, one can argue that God too is constantly working to improve God's self, so to speak. In one of the most startling passages in the Torah, Abraham challenges God. Abraham doesn't just challenge something that God wants us to do, destroy Sodom, right? Of course we should protest Sodom. Sodom hates the poor. Sodom hates the immigrant and the, and the refugee. Sodom is the paradigmatic evil city. Of course we should protest Sodom. But questions whether or not God is just at all. Abraham challenges God's justice. Abraham is the first Jew, the, the quintessential Jew. And he asks the most bold questions. Shame on you. You unjust judge, Abraham seems to say. Abraham does not debate God in the course of so many encounters where confrontation would seem to be most appropriate. He seems to have no pr problem circumcising the males of his home. He is ready to leave his home and his homeland upon God's demand. So it's not startling or out of character that he is prepared to kill his son so readily after being commanded to do so, the binding of Isaac. Nonetheless, in this moment, Abraham is fierce in his interrogation, and God doesn't seem to mind. And even though God's decision prevails in the end, divine patience does not seem to be lost in the slightest when Abraham takes up God's time, as if God has time, to challenge the idea of collective punishment. We are told famously here in Genesis, and Abraham drew near. I love that phrase. Abraham drew near. What do you mean drew near? And he said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous and the wicked? And if there are 50 righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep away and not forgive the place for the 50 righteous that are within? Far be it from you to do this manner, to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked? That's so the righteous should be as, uh, be as the wicked? Far be it from you. And here's the most poignant line, right? Shall the judge of all the earth do justly? That is the line of theodicy born in the Torah. You are just, but you're not going to act justly, right? Prove to me there's no just people in this whole city of Sodom, right? You're going to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Are there no just people there? What's going to happen in warfare? when you're gonna defend yourself or go on an offensive and there's innocent people there among, among the wicked, right? But now God, you're the one doing it. This is not just the messiness of human warfare. This is divine warfare. In a similar vein, consider the startling words of Jeremiah. Right would you be, O Lord, were I to contend with you, yet will I reason with you? Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they secure that deal very treacherously? You've planted them. They have taken root. They grow. They bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouths and far from their reins. You might have thought theodicy is born post-Holocaust, but the prophets are asking theodicy, why are the wicked prospering? And why are the righteous suffering? What, what kind of God are you? 
Even King David, held up as the hero of faith, questions God in the Psalms, where do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our op oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly cleaves to the earth. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Express most succinctly, Malachi. Did you know there was a prophet Malachi? He asked, God, where are you? Where is the God of justice? Right? Very directly. And similarly, Habakkuk, you ever read Habakkuk? Is also waiting for God's justice. How long, oh God, shall I cry? And you will not hear my cry? I cry out to you of violence, and you don't save? Why do you show me iniquity and behold mischief? And why are spoiling and violence before me so that there's strife and contention arises? Friends, if we live a life of comfort, we might not be plagued with the question. But if you lose everything, you live in Jerusalem and the whole city is destroyed and you are exiled, and you believe you're a chosen people, how can you understand that an omnipotent God is not there? If you think you're the chosen people and the Holocaust is happening and you see your children in a gas chamber, in a crematoria, and you, and you see one-third of the Jewish people wiped out and no path towards salvation? How could you believe in an omnipotent, benevolent God? If you are Job, and you have a family, and your family is killed, you lose all your money, you lose everything you have. How could you believe in a benevolent, omnipotent, omnipotent God? All the prophets are thinking, and the prophets don't need to be the ones who are oppressed to do this. Because the prophet's job is to be a channel to God, as a voice for the people and a channel for, to the humans for a voice of God. And so the prophet speaks upon the oppressed, whether or not he or she is oppressed. They are the hero of empathy. They don't need, they don't need the suffering of Job to be the person who raises these questions, right? To be a prophet means you don't cry out in questions of theodicy when you suffer. You be a prophet of empathy when you see your neighbors suffer. And he waits longer. And Habakkuk continues, you who are eyes too pure to behold evil and that cannot look on mischief, wherefore do you look when they deal treacherously and hold your peace when the wicked swallow up man that is more righteous than he, friends, even more painful than a hurricane or a tsunami, because you understand that God is in charge of nature, is when the evil do it. It is that much harder because it's not only the suffering you're suffering with, you're also suffering with the pain of seeing the wicked win when you think the Nazis are going to conquer the globe or Stalin is going to overtake all of the world, right? You see, you see the greatest evils winning. You see Rome ransacking. You see the Babylonian Empire ransacking. You see the Persian Empire ransacking. You see the Egypt pharaohs ransacking. You see empires that just trample over the weak. And it's not only the pain of the suffering, it's also the pain of seeing a world where the wicked prosper. You see politicians who arise in America, wherever they are in their extremes, and their extremes with their moral compass and a, and a far left or in a far right seems so off. You see them in such a completely one-sided approach where they celebrate one population and demonize another. You say, this is like the American greatness, right? In such a sense. Right? You say, and you suffer not only because you see people who suffer, who, who they then accuse and demonize. You, 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 see, you see the downfall of a democracy right in front of your eyes, right? The book of the Tanakh 
in which issues of theodicy are most pronounced, of course, is what? The book of Job, Eov. Job has everything and he loses everything. In his misery, he doesn't just question whether God exists or not, is powerful or not, but whether God is just or not. He writes, or it says, as God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty who has dealt bitterly with me, all the while my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils, surely my lips shall not speak unrighteously, neither shall my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should justify you. So friends, part of the theodicy is, is there a God? How could there be a God if the world is so unjust? But Job has a different premise. Of course there's a God. But how could this God be just if this is how the world operates? Right? I can't give up on omnipotence. I can't give up on the fact that God has power. I mean, what, what would God be if not powerful? Right? I mean, how could there be such a notion of God? That would be humans. That would be nature. That'd be something else. But justice, right? What would it mean to pray to a God who's not just? Fast forward to perhaps the greatest atrocity in human history, the Shoah, the Holocaust. And Elie Wiesel recalls, he says, we really did put God on trial in the concentration camps. It wasn't just an idea. We had a trial of God. I was there when God was put on trial. And at the end of the trial, they used the word chayav rather than ashamed, guilty. It means God owes us something. And then we went to Davin. Right? Then we went to Davin. They said God is, God is, God is guilty. God is not just not just guilty, not just, but God is God is responsible. God is responsible. Of course, once again, this is where Yitz Greenberg says that the covenant was broken. That the covenant between Israel and, and divine was broken. But Eli Wiesel says, we put him on trial and we found God was responsible. Wiesel famously wrote a play on the matter entitled The Trial of God. What's startling about the story is that after the characters found God guilty or responsible, they went, as stated above, to pray. This is the spiritual life of a Jew. We can argue with God and even find God guilty, but then we, in some way, return to engagement. Both our intellectual integrity and our spiritual commitments are held intact, even when seemingly contradictory. The Kedushat Levi argued radically, a Hasidic thinker, on multiple occasions that righteous people, tzaddikim, can overturn God's decrees, implying that God's decree was too harsh, but human mercy could reverse it. For example, he writes, the Talmud reveals that God's people comprise people of the stature of royalty, people who are able to, by their very stature, to overturn evil decrees made by God in heaven and turn their effect into blessings, right? God decreed something too harshly, and the tzaddik can overturn God's decree. This is also seen in the Talmud, that the sages can reinterpret the harshness of biblical law to have something more stomachable for our time. Viktor Frankl, in his Man in Search of Meaning, argues that those who could have a better chance as survivors from the Shoah were not physically stronger or the most devout of faith, but those who could make meaning of their trauma. Here the challenge is diverted from anger at God toward personal meaning making and growth. In pushing back, in pushing us not to abandon God, but rather to reimagine God, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, ah, no, that's a mistake of mine. 
Rabbi Harold Kushner, not related. Um, Lawrence Kushner has retired from the rabbinate. He does art now. Harold Kushner, Rafua Shlema is very sick. He doesn't teach now for many years. Um, uh, he's, you know, um, uh, he should have a Rafua Shlema. In his book, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis wrote shortly after his wife's death of cancer that the danger of affirming all misfortune as God's will is not so much that people will stop believing in God. He's not worried about people stop believing in God. The danger is that they will come to believe in God, but will believe terrible things about him. Worse than concluding there's no God, people will conclude there's a God, but he's a monster. He's cruel, heartless God who snatches children from their families and takes parents from children who need them. A God who uses awesome power to destroy in an hour what it took a family years to build. Who can love a God like that? Who can turn to such a God for help in times of grief? Such a God would be a God who inspires fear, not a God who repeatedly urges his people, don't be afraid. To address the problem of theodicy, we must loosen our grip on one of the three theological commitments. God's benevolence, is God good? That evil is indeed evil? Or third, God's omnipotence. Given the conceptions of the divine shared across the Jewish world, we must, I believe, abandon we, the idea that God is not good. Because the whole basis of a God worth believing in and engaging with is the idea that God is just and loving. We, said we should also abandon the temptation to reject human reason and conscience and suggest the suggestion that humans simply have no clue on the difference between good and evil. We will often hear this, humans are limited. We don't know what's right and wrong. So abandon human morality and submit to divine command, right? We don't ultimately know. So again, I'm suggesting we abandon the approach that God is not good. And I'm suggesting we abandon the approach that says humans have no idea what's good. We can't entertain the notion that genocide is actually through some moral perversion, the ideal or even an acceptable state of affairs. John Hick wrote succinctly, a theology cannot go unchallenged when it is repugnant to the moral sense that has been that has been formed by the religious realities upon which their theologies profess to be based. Um, Yitz Greenberg also famously wrote, we must reject any theology which would be unspeakable if you were speaking to someone in a concentration camp, right? Don't think you can argue because you're not in the camp. You can argue for it. If you can't say it to them while, while you could smell the burning of flesh, you can't say it ever. So, of course, we must acknowledge that not all pain can be acquainted with evil. Pain is not equal to evil. Maybe God should have created a world without pain. But that world could not have had human beings in it, where pain is so fundamental to the human experience and the human striving to alleviate pain. And so not all pain inevitable in the human condition is a theological problem. So the only option, I believe, in engaging with evil is to name that which is truly evil, to realize that God also sees it as evil. And the problem is that God's that God lacks some element of the, of the power necessary to defeat evil, right? So once again, once we acknowledge evil is real, we acknowledge God is good, the only option then is to, is to limit God's power. You can't, have your, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say God is all-powerful, evil is bad, and God is good. 
You can't have your cake and eat it too, because then where's God within, within evil, right? So the, I believe the only option, and this is where most theologians are going, is a limitation on God's power. That means the work is left here for us humans. So is God weak, we might ask? The ultimate heretical question? Not necessarily. One significant concept found within Jewish tradition teaches us, once again, as we know, that God chooses simsum, limiting God's own power to, in, to empower human freedom. Gershon Shalom explains the concept in brief. Simsum originally means concentration or contraction, but if used in the Kabbalistic parlance, is best translated by, by withdrawal or retreat. The Midrash in sayings originating from third century teachers occasionally refers to God as having concentrated his Shekhinah, his divine feminine presence in the holiest of holies at the place of the uh, Kerubim, as, as though his whole power were concentrated, contracted in a single point. Here we have the origin of the term Simsu. This is very interesting what Shalom is doing. Well, the thing itself is the precise opposite of this idea. To the Kabbalist of Luria school, Simsum does not mean the concentration of God at a point, but God's retreat away from a point. So again, that means that loosening our grip on omnipotence does not mean that God is weak. It means that God willfully retracts from the world to enable human freedom, allowing for the potential of evil and lacking, um, uh, limiting God's potential to respond to evil. The human enterprise is meaningful because we are free and empowered to be God's partners in creation. The rabbis of the Talmud were thinking about this, albeit with many different theological frameworks. It has been taught, Rebbe Meir used to say, the critic of Judaism may bring the following argument. If your God loves the poor, why does God not support them? If that happens, answer as follows. So that through them we may say we may be saved from the punishment of Gehenna. This question was actually put by Turnus Rufus to Rabbi Akiva. If your God loves the poor, why does God not support them? He, Rabbi Akiva, replied, so that we may be saved through them for the punishment of Gehenna. The Talmudic rabbis explain why Abraham and we can't have everything we want. We can't have both human freedom and a just world. It says here in the Midrash, if you want a world, you will have to have, you, you will not have justice. If it is justice you want, there will be no world. You are taking hold of the rope by both ends. You desire both a world and justice, but if you do not concede a little, the world cannot stand. Alicia Benavuya, the quintessential heretical figure for the Talmudic rabbis, and arguably the first atheist in the Jewish tradition, witnessed tragedy and chose a different path. He concluded, quote unquote, there is no justice and there is no judge. Nonetheless, the problem is still here for us and it is ours to address. God has empowered humans to respond to evil when it is in our control. But what about when it's not in our control? A tsunami wiping out a village a two-year-old suffering and dying from a painful degenerative disease, over a billion people born into the global south, into deep poverty, trying to flee to asylum. Do we accept this as God's will? Do we accept this as good and just? The Jewish tradition teaches that we are to do all we can 
And when we can't do enough, we ask God for help. And sometimes faithfully and sometimes through questioning, perhaps even protesting against God as a religious practice. Bracketing the Maimonidean tradition, which seems to propose a non-personal God, the major thrust of Jewish thought pushes us toward dialogue. Martin Buber wrote, if to believe in God means to talk about him in the third person, then I don't believe in God in some third person. If to believe in God means to be able to talk to God, then I do believe in God. Our primary Jewish engagement then must be not merely to philosophize, but also behavioral. Rather than talking about God, we talk to God. So too, rather than philosophizing about injustice and theodicy, our primary role is to respond to moral problems and to do what we can to combat the evil that we perceive. You know, I get this question all the time. They say, Rabbi, I'm not a religious Jew. You know, I'm attracted to the moral side of Judaism, not the religious ritual side. I said, who told you that makes you a non-religious Jew? Who told you that the ritual side makes you a religious Jew? As if the person who prays but is a, is a scoundrel in business ethics is religious. But the moral person who doesn't pray is somehow some, some non-religious Jew? You have it backwards. You have it backwards. The, the fundamental that makes you a religious Jew is not the religious side. It's the moral side. Yes, the ritual side is there to enhance and, and reinforce. But if someone is out there fighting for the oppressed or fighting against injustice and they're doing this with Jewish inspiration, that is quintessentially Jewish. Post-Holocaust theologian Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz wrote, Yehuda Halevi, who was not a rationalist, found it necessary to exclaim, God forbid that there should be anything in the Torah that is contrary to reason. The Torah is not absurd, and the authentic Jew does not engage in religious acrobatics. To believe in the absurd is absurd. The Polish writer and journalist, I always love when I can drop a name that no one's ever heard of, and then I don't even know how to pronounce, Tadasu Borowitz, Bor Borowski, who's cited in Fackenheim. I don't know anything about Borowski. I mean, I know a little bit. I only know about him because he's cited in Emil Fackenheim. He writes, you can fulfill the imperative of belief in God, in God without believing that God will necessarily always thwart undeserved evil. The concept prevalent in some quarters as a matter of inviolate dogma of a steady state, real-time omniscient, continuously intervening de deity has unfortunately caused much suffering to the Jewish people. Many sincere believers slackened up ever so slightly on their vigilance and self-reliance, confusing fate in retrospect with fate in prospect. For a sincere believer who is overly reliant on this inviolate dogma may not quickly enough rise to thwart his looming enemy. So friends, to conclude here, have we lost the questions and the search? Perhaps God is crying that we are no longer searching for the godly presence. The Rebbe of Mezhebizh told a story. This can be explained by what happened to me and the, my grandchild. He asked me to play hide and seek with him, and I agreed. I closed my eyes and counted, and he went to hide. I was suddenly distracted by a friend and forgot all about the child. Soon I heard him crying from his hiding place. No one has come to look for me. So does God cry. I am hidden, and my children do not search for me. In fact, sometimes, with uh, blessed with four biological kids, 
they're hiding and I forget that one is still hiding. And I'm like, oh, geez. And they've been in a hiding spot for 15 minutes. I say, oh, you really, you really duped me. <laughs> you really duped me in the hiding spot. You know, I was cutting the strawberries for one of the other kids. Here we can re relocate a contemporary approach to ancient Jewish theology, which has too often been dormant. This approach is necessary for all who struggle with religious faith, the existence of theodicy, and lingering questions about the exceptional and elusive composition of the soul. There are no easy answers to difficult questions. It should remain that way, even as we struggle to build a world that reflects the comfortable answers that we would like to see actualized, but that we know only exists in any kind of fulsome way in our collective imagination itself a force that we try to harness for good. As the political columnist and former member of parliament, John Stuart Mill famously remarked, better Socrates dissatisfied than the fool satisfied, better the fool dissatisfied than the pig satisfied. We can choose easy, comfortable answers, but we lose a part of our humanity in doing so. So the debate is and must remain between us and God. We have a lot to say, and God's response, it seems often is silence. All we can do is seize the opportunity to use our God-given power to alleviate evil in the world when we can. Okay, friends, I'd love to hear from you. Shmuley, would it count as an argument or a debate um, in 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 Gan Eden, for example, when when uh, when uh, they're accused of eating from the tree of knowledge? And this, well, no, I didn't do it. I mean, is it is it would it count as a would that count as a debate? Would it count as a debate when um, uh, Moses argued? with God, why, why me, why are you picking me? Why are you, why are you telling me to confront, confront? I'm, I'm just trying to see this God versus man uh, kind of thing. You know, why are you choosing me? When he questions God's choice of him to, you go to Pharaoh, you, you confront Pharaoh. Okay, great, great, Cheryl. So I would distinguish between the defense attorney and the prosecutor. I think the defense attorney, um, the defense attorney is what's happening in the Garden of Eden. The defense attorney is what's happening with Moshe. I think that the next level is, is, is um, the offensive side. Um, the defensive side, you're right, Cheryl, we'll see all over the place. A defense that, hey, what did I do wrong? Or why me, why choose me, right? But the next level is the attack, the, the, uh, the critique, the challenge where, um, where God has to provide proof, where God has to give evidence, God has to provide a defense. Um, but you're right, if we include the former side, Cheryl, we can include a whole other host of, because you're right, shouldn't Adam and Eve just have submitted? Um, or shouldn't Moshe have just accepted leadership? What does it mean to even push back in that, in that approach? That's a great. That's a, that's a great point. It's something I hadn't even thought about. That that other that other layer. 
Um, it, it's almost like children fighting. The child says, no, I didn't do it. Or the child said, no, they did it, right? Um, which is different than when the child finally is old enough to have the chutzpah to say to their parent, you did it, right? The first, a, a parent is very startled when the first time their child uh, comes to them and says, it's not that I didn't do it, it's you who did it, right? Well, so it seems in the, then it seems that your, your uh, debates today are based on when humans are confronting God for the yeah. first time. They're the yeah. ones that are reaching out and yeah. saying, as opposed to saying right. what, you know, are arguing about right. what what God has said. Yes. Okay. Right. Okay. And so, and thank you. And so, and so Abraham is the first. Cain and Abel. He doesn't say, um, "Well, God, how could you create a world of jealousy and anger?" Right. This is this is on you. He says. He says, "Am I my brother's keeper? Like, what, I'm responsible. Like, I need to defend myself." So too with the Garden of Eden. Right. And in the flood story, there's nothing. And so that's why it's so radical when Abraham emerges. Right. Um, in, in, in such a context. And by the way, I want to just emphasize again, this is something that makes Judaism profoundly unique, profoundly unique that, um, that what it would be considered irreverent by many other faith traditions um, is considered reverent and foundational to Jewish thought. Yes, Scott. Is there a, just a question and then a clarification. Is there a, um, with all these examples, that you referenced, is there a way to sort of um, crystallize, let's call it God's response, or is it tend to be kind of case specific? Because as I recall, with Sodom, there's haggling, right? Like Abraham starts off and says, can you save X number? And then he says, okay, well, can you save a smaller number? Okay, then you can, you, you know, like there's some haggling there. And then I think with Isaac, um, the son is spared, right? Abraham doesn't kill him, right? So is, is there a way to say, uh, well, God's answer to this t is this? Can you put that on a bumper sticker? Or is it case specific, right? And then the, the clarification is the, the, um, the quote about God being on trial, Eli Weissel. I just wanted to confirm, did, did, was he being metaphorical? Is that what he said kind of in public about kind of after the Holocaust and all that? Or was that all inside the play? And, and that's just a quote from the play, not just a quote, but that's a quote from the play. Yeah, okay, great, Scott. Thank you so much. Wow, that's a lot, that, that, that's a lot. I wanna, I wanna see a bunch of things there. Firstly, um, God, is, God is right in, in, the, in, the end, in the argument of Sodom, right? Um, that um, in fact, he agrees that it won't be destroyed if those, um, if those righteous people are there. But in the end, they weren't there, which is why he justifies um, killing them. Now, let me throw a question. I want to come. I want to come to your other points, but first, let me throw a question to everyone. How do you understand that Abraham protests against this wicked city being destroyed, but immediately after does not protest the command to kill his son? How does anyone understand this? Anyone want to take a stab? Let me repeat the, let me repeat the, uh, repeat the problem. God is going to destroy the wicked city of stone and Avraham protests. Then right after God is, says, kill your son. And Avraham doesn't raise a word of protest. How do, how do you, how do you uh, understand this contradiction? Okay. I, I did a lot of reading on that because I gave it to our Torah two years ago on, on the Kedah. Um, 
and I believe, I think this comes from Rabbi um, Lopez Cordoza, basically he said that Abraham got it wrong, that Abraham, and he went through this whole thing about how Abraham could choose to be stone-like, or he could choose to be, you know, like um, uh, full of chesed. And he, he lost the argument about uh, Storm and he lost his, he, he lost his belief in himself. And then he lost his argument for Yishmael. And then that was it. And he lost his ability to argue with Hashem when it came to um, Yitzchak. And that what Hashem wanted was for Avraham to say, no, this is idolatry, this we do not do. It, it, okay, it's the only beautiful. way I can like it. Great. Okay, good. So Lauren gives a very compelling answer, which is that, um, uh, which is actually, and the, the Rao Bag is the first to give this approach, Gersonides from Provence. Gersonides says, Avraham misunderstood the command. It doesn't say kill your son. It says take him up. And so Raubov does some acrobatics to say Avraham misunderstood the command of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, and he thought God said, make him an offering and kill him. God didn't say that. God said, take him up. Make, you know, take him up. Okay, so that's one approach. Anyone want to offer a different approach on how you drive the story? Okay, let me offer one. What I would suggest is God, as opposed to Avraham misinterpreting the binding of Isaac command, he misinterprets the result of Sodom. He said, I protested God, and I guess it was futile. God destroyed the city anyways. I was wrong. God is just, so why should I protest? God knew there weren't righteous people there. Of course, God is just and all-knowing, and so I shouldn't bother protesting. So now, kill my son? Okay, I already learned that. What do I know? You're the one who knows. He didn't misinterpret the, the binding of Isaac command. He misinterpreted the result. But in fact, God said, no, you weren't wrong to protest me. What you were wrong with was that there were righteous people there. There were the righteous people there. But you were right to protest. He never rebukes Abraham for, for protesting. So, so too, God is waiting for him to protest the binding of Isaac command. I'm going I'm to give you the command. So once again, you can, you can protest and show the world that you should protest this. Okay. So um, now going back to Scott's points here, the only book in Tanakh that ends with a question is the book of Jonah. And I know that only because I've spent a little time thinking about the book of Jonah. And, um, and that question is a rebuke from God to Jonah. But normally God is silent when the prophets rebuke God, challenge God. Um, God does not answer um, these questions um, most commonly. Uh, maybe folks will have uh, an example otherwise here. But that is an interesting case where God is, is responding. Um, <clears throat> sometimes we see a response and a turn of fate. In Jonah's case, things are good, and then they're bad, and they're good again, right? And so um, that's an... In I'm, I said Jonah, I'm sorry, Job, Job. For Job, things um, things are, are, are good and then bad and good again. So sometimes, sometimes God responds like that. Now, to your Ellie Wiesel point, this is not metaphorical. Ellie Wiesel was being literal. Ellie Wiesel is interesting because after the Holocaust, survivors, I mean, went in lots of directions, but typically they went in one of two. They either rejected God and went secular, 
or they became very devout in their faith. Um, they, they went very devout in their faith for, for other reasons. Eli Wiesel is kind of a middle ground where Eli Wiesel strengthened his belief in God and became a thinker of, of Hasidut as a professor. He has Hasidic tales and Hasidic stories. He loves, he's, a, he's, in, he's obsessed with God, Eli Wiesel. But he's the same one who really believes God is guilty on trial and responsible, right? So he's very serious about this. It's not metaphorical. This is not like some like, like, like interesting, playful uh, uh, idea or play, right? He's very serious. Like God is God is gonna that so too. In fact, I wrote this uh, when Eli was all died. I wrote in a, an imaginary dialogue about about God. Uh, Eli was all meeting God, and Eli was all challenging him directly, and that being their relationship, and how God responds to Eli Wiesel in my imagination in their in their debating there, and him praising him for challenging him, um, and, and them crying together. In any case, one last thing I want to say tangential to this which, because Cheryl brought up uh, Moshe, and I think you brought up, um, oh no, uh, you may not have, but him hitting the rock. I saw this great interpretation recently. Uh, Cheryl, did you mention hitting the rock? No, but that's another one. That's oh, okay, yeah. silent, That's kind of a silent one, you know? Yeah. Because he did, it was an active one as opposed to, as opposed yeah. to actually arguing yeah. or, you know, debating or questioning. He just okay. did it. Yes, awesome. Yeah. So, um, um, well, oh, so yeah, and Moshe's not entered into the land and he can't handle that. He can't handle But I saw this great interpretation I never saw it until just this last week. I was reading this stuff about UFOs. And have you heard this thing that, that about the leaked documents from the Pentagon? That for years we've seen high-level data that UFOs are present and they, have, they didn't want this leaked. And it was great in the middle of the Palestinian-Israeli crisis because I'm like so immersed in, in conflict. And then I'm zooming out, I'm like, whoa, but actually like there's like UFOs here, like let's zoom out to a bigger picture. And so what happened here was I started thinking about um, this issue on a related but tangential level about how I used to think Hindus were fools. I'm like praying to, through stones, what are you doing? Like, like God is not a rock, this is so foolish. And then I kind of evolved and I'm like, no, I totally get it. I totally get why Hindus are praying through stones. And as a panentheist who believes there's sparks of divinity within everything, like as the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, he prayed through his gender, he prayed through his lectern, that why is Moshe rebuked for hitting the rock? Because it says in the prophecy, it says in the books of the Tanakh that, that the, the stones will speak. The sto in the Messianic era, in Yemea Mashiach, the rocks will all, the inanimate objects also have souls. We think of human as having souls, and then we think of animals having lower levels of souls, but the prophets and Kabbalah also teach that the inanimate also have souls, what Aristotle called the vegetative soul, right? And so too, the Kabbalah says, there is a soul within the rocks. And only prophets can see it. So why is Moshe punished for hitting the rock? Because the rock was also speaking from divinity. And Moshe was hearing it. And nonetheless, he hit the rock. <laughs> I thought that's so amazing. I thought that's so amazing. Okay, in any case, um, let's hear from someone else here. David. Well, you, um, 
you know, just before you opened this up for discussion, you said, all we can do is use our God-given power to help alleviate evil or, and suffering in the world. And that took me back again to the Kabbalistic idea, the mystical idea. And when I say mystical, generally speaking, mystical means some concept of oneness. Oneness in the universe is generally what mystical means. And the Kabbalistic ideal that everything flows from the Ein Sof, that place of no thingness, which is the source of everything that is manifest in the universe. And it manifests through the sphero, the, you know, the different qualities uh, which are, have been referred to uh, as God's sort of inner life or inner personality. And, um, and so, and Gershom Sholem uh, talks about this concept of the Ein Sof sort of as the sap, which I've mentioned before, the sap of the tree, like if the tree is the universe, right? The sap is that unseen everything that, that actually manifests differently, uh, but at its essence, everything is that. So with this idea of oneness and this concept you say of all we can do is use our God-given power to alleviate evil in the world, are we making a mistake by viewing God as a separate thing than we? I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so, 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 so the question is, uh, you know, are we looking for an outside third party here? Really? I mean, I, I know God is viewed as a separate thing in Tanakh. And, um, you know, we've talked in the past about process theology, which gets us a little bit closer, which is that sort of we're co-creating with God as we go along. Uh, but there's also the idea that we are making things happen in the world using our God-given power. In other words, everything in the manifest world is, is that oneness which we are all part of. And so whether we or the animals or the rock, as you talk about, uh, and, and even acts of nature, so to speak, they are we, are, we are all of that. And so the decisions we make, the things we do, you could make an argument, that is the way God acts and speaks in the world. So, Awesome. It's another, another it, it, it's, it's a way to move us away from the duality and look at the world from a, the concept of, of a unity, which provides uh, some weird, but uh, I think answers worth pondering. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for that, David. This is really important. So let's acknowledge the three possibilities here. Option one, there is no God. Option two, there is a God and God is a separate entity from the human experience. That's the assumption that theodicy was operating on. Option three, which David is, is, is offering us now, from dualism to monism, right? That actually in this notion of oneness, whether it's process theology or liberation theology or, 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 um, or Hasidut based on Kabbalah, um, that there is oneness. 
And actually God is responding through us. When we have strength, when we have resources, that is the, the God-given potentiality. That is the godliness within the, within the human self. So either the monistic approach as opposed to the dualistic approach, either um, uh, does away with the question itself because God is crying with us. We are all, God is suffering with us because God is a part of the reality that we are also wrestling with. Or it, um, or it means that, um, that, that God is still an active agent, not just a passive part of that reality um, and is actually a part of what is feeding us. And I think this is a really um, interesting way to, to move this towards, because as I said, the primary Jewish response throughout history, even though I showed many um, arguments with God, is not the philosophical question of where is God, but it is the, it is the activist response. I don't know, but what am I going to do today to alleviate suffering? And here, we can feed ourselves with that, um, the divine power to do more. We can feed ourselves with the wisdom, with the food, with the sleep, with the inspiration, whatever it is, to enhance the God's light within us, the godliness in us, our, our capacity to receive and see that, so that we can be the response to suffering. And as David is saying, in us responding, God is responding also. Thank you, David. Time for one more. Um, if I can just, just a few things that I've always found, maybe this is childlike, that that was conflicting. Lauren, your audio got worse. Oh. I forgot to turn off my, my speaker. Um, so thinking back to 1967, I'm an old person, and 1973, I mumish saw the hand of Hashem. And I believe 1948 was the hand of Hashem. Um, against all odds, it shouldn't have gone the way it went. So there I see the hand of Hashem and Hashem actually responding to, to worldly things, to protecting the Jewish people. But then again, you know, my dad was a survivor. I understand the Shawah. We've, we've seen horrific acts of genocide throughout the world. So I've always had a hard time putting that together. Or is it simply a very childish belief to think that we can still see the hand of God in our time? Uh, Lauren, thank you for that. I don't want to call any beliefs childish. I, um, I, I really think if you, if you have come to the conclusion to be an atheist or agnostic and it's for sophisticated reasons, that's not childish. If you've come to believe God is all powerful in control of the world, um, and as a separate being, that's not childish. If you've come to believe that God is, is good, but not all powerful, that's not childish. And if you've, you know, if you've come to a, a Kabbalistic understanding, and I think I want to expand our tent of, of the range of views we can hold. And, um, and, some, and I also want to say that some theologies work. They work, and, um, and that's great. And some theologies don't work, and that doesn't make them wrong, right? I think, for example... You're, the theology you're arguing, it doesn't work. It doesn't work to say God is powerful and present in 1948 and 67, but where's God in the Holocaust? It's inconsistent. But the fact that it doesn't work doesn't mean it's not right. 
We don't know. We don't know. Now, someone can make it work by saying, oh, you're right. In 1948 God, and 1967, God wasn't there because God wasn't there in, in, the, in the Holocaust. And so that's consistent. That works. But it's also, it closes the door on, on, a, on, on, on God's intervention. Now, um, and so uh, I, 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 and I'm like you. I mean, I, I, part of my liberal Zionism is based on the need for Jews to have a refuge. Part of my liberal Zionism is based on the aspiration of what Jewish values could achieve if given such a, a platform. And part of it is built on the miracles of 1967, you know, uh, I, which I wasn't alive, but I experienced uh, secondhand as miraculous. I mean, you know, and so, um, and so these are big questions without easy answers. Um, and, um, and, I, and, I, and I hope we can just keep, keep the arguments alive, keep the tensions alive, and, and, and by the way, I think it's okay to be different people. Um, um, for example, I am a different person. I am a country, I am a, I, 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 being calling myself a hypocrite might be a little too strong, but I am a contradic contradictory paradoxical person. When I pray, I believe God is in control of the world. That's how I pray. I pray for people's healing, right? I pray for strength. I pray that God's powerful. When I think, and I'm not praying, I assume that God is not powerful, right? I think about God in a different way in my intellectual life than in my spiritual life. When I'm at a hospital bed and I pray for God's healing to be with that person, I really believe it. I believe we can channel God's influence to bring healing, right? When I'm in my car driving home, I say if there was any healing, it was my presence with the person. It was a human encounter. This, you know, why is the person in the hospital anyways? Right? David, David's, David's going to jump in. Well, don't we say pray like everything depends on God, act as if everything depends on you? Yes, there we go. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. I think that's right. I think that um, I, that's a very, that's a beautiful phrase. And I think that, um, that, you know, it's funny. Most of the stories I tell my children, they often forget, but they never forget the, that, that famous boat one. That they, they, I hear them telling it to their friends, you know, the, you know, the boat one. I don't have to repeat it. I, I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. But in any case, um, uh, yeah, I think this is right. I think that um, um, we, can, um, we, can bring, we can bring our prayer, so to speak, however we understand prayer to be, um, into that aspirational space. And then we go and do everything we can. We go and do everything we can um, to, uh, to change reality. So friends, I give us that blessing. We hold on to the questions. We hold on to the arguments. We hold on to the tensions and the paradoxes. And while we engage in that theology and that spiritual quest, we go out and we spend our lives doing all we can to alleviate suffering, to fight against oppression, to take a stand against injustice. Um, and for some of us, it may mean that we just submit to God while we do that. And for some of us, it may mean in the tradition of Abraham, that we also raise hard questions. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Great to see you all. God bless.